0: Welcome. Um, Thanks so much for coming out. I'm gonna introduce Vani Capaldeo and Vivek Narayanan. Vani Capaldeo's fourth book, Dark and Unaccustomed Words, is due out later this year. Her third, Undraining Sea, has been called implacable and tender, and drew notice for the poet's unerring vocal surety and exploratory many-voiced attention to the clamor of experience. Her first book, No Traveler Returns, was published by Salt Books. We have a copy uh, there for perusal, and we also have a copy, uh, we have copies of Undraining Sea for sale. Um, she is, Cabaldeo uh, is a lecturer at Kingston University and contributing editor for the Caribbean Review of Books. She's a scholar of English, Old Norse, and of translation theory, and has worked for the Oxford English Dictionary. She lives in Oxford. Vivek Narayanan's first book, Universal Beach, came out just this week and is for sale also in the back. His second, Mr. Subramanian, is forthcoming. Narayanan is a co-editor of Almost Island and was a coordinator of the Fellowship Network at Sarai in Delhi. His work appears in The Blood Axe, Book of Contemporary English Indian Poetry, and language for a new century, contemporary poetry from the Middle East, Asia and beyond. He lives in Delhi. Um, in bringing together these two writers, I was thinking uh, that I wanted to hear them both read here in this space. Um, so despite the talk series constraints, I think that's what we're gonna do. Um, it's partially to bring their work here in the strongest possible sense and partially in the sense of generating a kind of illumination to proceed by. Capaldeo writes of stringing a series of lights between this and anything else that happens. Glowing threads run through the work that we might take up, how varying and contentious meanings of Anglophone literature and canonicity can be, how such work is or can be thought, and also in a very real sense distributed, how the different place, how different places place very different demands on it, As Capaldeo writes, our storybooks were English and children in them ran around thousand-year-old castles or 200-year-old vicarages. Our myths were Hindu and we were encouraged to imagine many civilizations in a universe cyclically created and destroyed. And our island geography, we were told, had been Arawak and Carib. Or as Narayanin writes, unbearable inheritance, choice of chaise lounge or freedom of intricate parks reason, reprise. Please welcome Vivek Narayanan and Vani Kapadeo.
1: Thank you for coming, friends. Um, I will uh, first read, uh, I'll read a poem from uh, the first book, uh, Universal Beach. And then I'll read something which uh, I guess would be, would go in my third book, and then I will get into um, Mr. Subramanian, which is mm, a little different. So uh, this book, this poem is called My Father's Wound. Um... Avocado trees on the moon, Aichigam Mulagum, Billy Blue Gum. This is not exactly a confessional. My father's wound was also my wound, dirt outside Vedanta Hall, blood in the dirt below the gutter pipe, blood like washing undone in my bunion fold. I'm not saying that blood was the thing. My father was singing. From the tall, narrow barred window the gravel driveway in the heat. My father's wound is jelly to the touch. I touch it now. A broken tree on the floor. Tarzan says, Tarzan save Vivek father wound. The shadow before state house. He will ride his bike no more. Once I looked up from paper and saw the clouds move. It was terrible that clouds could move. The clouds moving reminded me of my father's wound. I don't care if you like this. I'm going to take my time. My father came back from a hernia operation. There had been a mistake. The stitches had to be removed. Every day I had seen him shaving in the bathroom, whistling Balamurli's songs. If you're going to write a poem about me, my father says, don't forget to mention my daily yoga. There is a large glass door looking onto the pool. My father cleared that place up. Surrealism only matters if it's real. I listened to Michael, Mr. Mister, Genesis. On Kirie, I saw a massive bird block the sky while I blasted the song from the car stereo to the playground and the driver sat quietly. Did I mention we had a driver? He drove me around when my father had his wound and could not move. I betrayed that wound. I see it half formed, my mother washing him, his long, painful yelps. This was scary to hear those animal sounds. My mother went in there instead of me, splashing a red oval among the ripples. and this next one, we, we were planning a, a longer discussion around uh, reception, but, but uh, how it's happened is, it's happened, uh, I suppose, come up in a couple few of our poems. And um, this particular one uh, relates to uh, a kind of a chain of incidents. I was uh, published in an anthology, and there was a, a senior poet who um, reviewed the anthology and thought I shouldn't be in it uh, he thought I was lightweight, and then and then I um, uh, then I uh, um, had a couplet in my book of poems that uh, rhymed his name um, in, a <clears throat> in a particular way, and uh, and then and then the book came to him for review. Uh, so so half of the review was 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 uh, a, a defense of his name. And, uh, and then the other half of the review was uh, talking about my book being uh, kind of too uh, complex and um, labyrinthine. So anyway, so this is, so this is what uh, came up after that. A meeting with the senior poet who hated me. <laughs> Last night I used up in a dream all that I had to give, reading out my collected works in some grimly renovated tube-lit hall. It took a while, and when it was done, without a word, without applause, each member of the audience stood up one by one and marched into a sudden tunnel. From where I stood, I could see heel following heel in the echoing ardor of their single file my wordless goodbye until, into a concealed turn, the procession disappeared. I hadn't moved. Now only one seat was still occupied in that guttered hall, a stocky, mustachioed man. With a bit of caution, he got up and gave me a pained grin. I knew his face only from photographs. I'd made fun of him in a slightly evil rhyme and he, angrily, had tried to take revenge by panning my first book. Sir, I said, casting about for some inoffensive appellation, I hope you see I never intended malice. I mean, so soon. It's okay, he said, cutting me off. Time evacuates intention. Pause. But what's left, I said? Nothing, just some cartoon that makes the eyes fall out. Well, well, never mind, he replied, warming conspiratorially, fixing me in the moon of his brow. I guess it helped us out in the end, both of us, didn't it? Hey, hey, thanks. I don't know what got into me then, but we embraced. I felt his forearms on my back, and I slipped my fingers through the knots of his hair. Okay, I continued. That rhyme might have been a little misjudged, but, Isn't it like some enzyme leavening us from within, all grown up, a tongue between us, or indeed a mind far enough to know and mourn all that was to and could have been said? It's teeth that make a single poetry, echoed he, looking still forlorn, still tough. Anyway, they'll consign us to the lousy depths of the database for sure, said I, They'll plant the blandest gardens on our remains, and those that tramp us down will follow in turn into the long ravine where all our little victories vanish, each dropped planet in the cry of its jolted orbit, the sand of our languages by degrees pulverized and bleached into air. Well, we may be aught but minor poets of the early 21st century, but damn it, we have our pride. Now, now, don't get scared. Our dues are paid, responded he. Who moves the pen is moved by the pen. Huh, I said, that's kind of a labyrinthine line. I like that. I knew you bloody would, he said then. This is your sort of poem, is it not? And it's true that I would have preferred to be stuck in some febrile living stench than over here, but listen, If this tube-lit, two-bit indoor limbo is going to be our home, and we're trapped in this embrace for all of eternity, I suppose it's best to get comfortable. And then, almost as if our inadvertent words had released a spell, the inside became the outside, a warm breeze blew against us, fire mated with air, and the earth, too, flung about in damp, Cloths parted to take us in. So this is, uh, this, these are, this next poems are from this manuscript, of uh, Mr. Subramanian, and I think I will <clears throat> just launch right into it without any preamble. declares himself hereby, does Master Subraman nearly unpronounceable union, in plain black pant and plain black shirt, to the American comrades with the arrow of history where it meet the blackening sea, here in the conjoining of our countries, the evil they ring together, with hope of some True, some different, some less cynical alliance. For we manifest that order unknown to us. For look how far we come in these few years, begging for business as usual. On the necessity of speaking of caste. First, the dreaded fear of caste wearing its little corset on trained and bumpy ribs. It stains your vision, corrugates your body, bawdy as it is and cussed and with no language to speak of itself outside of itself. Then a more untethered fear of a kind of polarity, a cathode leaping current into the other eyes, a betrayal, a way of merely repeating with each denial You cut away that plaster cast, but your limbs occupied the same space they did before. Always the coast of saying too much versus the inland of saying little. Often the boast of castlessness cast about while coarsening the mixture in tentative, proffered proof, corset-ripping, habit-cleaning, cross-questioning each minutiae of self-performance for evidential taint. The problem is you are no one, least of all yourself, chatterbox, tube light, and any skin scan cursed acre by cursed acre, any videograph plotted image by captured amputated frame will not unearth the mounting or final particular, will neither incriminate nor exonerate Better head for the coast of everything, a trip you won't be coming back from, the death salve of total repolarity. For yank that one thread of caste and the whole shebang unravels, and no word is sacred, not culture, not history, not ancestry, not identity, not community, not kismet, not daddy, mummy, tata, party, arm, veerdu, vandi, mook, patter, chapel, apple, application, beating, nadai, sakre, confuse, suppose, close, decide, not even to mention the fruitless farce of having to footnote the debacle. You can escape to those places where they've barely heard of it, a little joke, a quaint curiosity of textbooks, casting yourself across, casting yourself anew, with your English in your secret pouch, but that is no escape. There the questions that dogged your open eyes grow terrifyingly academic, where squared in the brace of not quite similar corollaries, your amnesia buries the whole bone and the cost no longer shows up on the balance sheet even if you're still paying back on the coast of caste, where the current is rapidly dragging you into the deep and everything except the polarities has shifted for everything must always shift for your senses are no guarantee and the easiest possible to destabilize, and the handshake of the everyday mocks you in its forthrightness despite the downcast eyes cut across and overwritten and underwritten by other feints and fealties going far back or sprouting anew, submerged deep below the public curse, the demure corset of citizenship, the bearish casket of implication, predestination, the cathodes rays reaching to turn you inside out while the wise voices say, oh silly Subramanian, give it up, relax, cool it with that pathetic, irritating, upper-caste self-flagellation again. Cool it with that uneasiness in yours or anyone else's skin. Cool the quicksand of your abstractions, Cast yourself into the waves, leave it alive, live yourself, leave us alone, while the heavens open up and the cussed gods and the cussed demons and the five missing casts churn the land from the sea, draw out the everlasting distinctions, or at least the idea of distinction, and the older boys gamble over games in the street, and the staler sits in his little room with the TV on and mends again the corsets seam, And the night broadcasts itself in wave upon wave, up and down and up and down the simmering coast, and what is written comes back to haunt what has not yet been written, and the dogs howl and bark and howl, and the late workman still hammers at the building, and the stars in truth know nothing of the future, and the foundation is ripped from the torso of the earth. Short prayer to the economy. Prayers for fishes tossed each to each in translucent glue. Prayers for the hairier beasts roistering in rolling tundra. If we are to conceive a world, let us conceive it at all risk, one. Prayers for the wily bicycle, night of secular propulsion. Prayers for uncoagulated human residue impossible to weigh in balance, and our economy that intricate grows beyond forbearance. I found, I don't know, I need, I to know. Who can I talk? Who can I call? What must I do? Where must I put it? How can I use it? What is your number? Who will you call? Where will we go? How will we make it? Where will we put it? Who can I finger? How will they take it? Where is the button? How can I find it? How did he get there? Who does he know? What can it do? Where does it go? How do you work it? What will it work? Take what it will. Work it you do. How does it wear? What can it do? Who does he know? Who did he get there? How did he find it? How is the button, where will they take it, how can I finger, who will we put it, where make it how, we will go where, call you what who, number how how, must I put where, I do I must I, what a call, can I call To I know, I need, I know, I don't, I found, I feed. Prayers for the musical crow, the intimate mosquito whose kisses are here to stay. Prayers for the contract killer, the contractual signer, unspeakable, unimpeachable bond, and our shared godless theology that hooks the day to day. Prayers for all projectiles, red, yellow, somewhat bluish, spinning inert, riskily pulsed. Prayers for gashes of quarried stone, saunas of smelted aluminum, ever-thinning veins of copper, from where the monstrous weather grows. Feed, I found, I don't know, I need, I know to can, who I to talk to, who can I call, what must I do, where put I must, how number who, what you call where, go will we how, it make it where, it put we will, who finger I can, how it take they, will wear button, the is, how, find he did how, they get he did, who know he does, who do it can, what where it does, how do you do it, work will it what, take work it will, what work you do, go it does, where do it can, what no he does, who get there he, did how it find, I can how button, the is where it take they will how, finger I can, who put it we, we, will where make it, we will how go, we will where call, You will who number, yours is what use, I can how put it, I must where do, I must what call, I can who talk, I can who know to, I need, I know, don't I, found, I've. Prayers for the intestinal tract whose winding road grows hidden. Prayers for the rickety aeroplane suspended in the air. The prickly fog will take us, will all of us be spared? Prayers for every scrawny stick uncountable, each that I know by name. Prayers for the murderous authors, the deadened reader, the wakening good. And lastly, that arithmetic knot of our making, its obsolete fire. Uh, This is a, this poem, is I guess four, um, if it helps, it, it, it's, it's four uh, hypermetrical, uh, very long lines, which are also four sentences. It's called um, Walks for the Near and Far Senses. The hypertrophied city, it is pure food for the shadowy eye, the present ear, but the gently discursive nose, alas, must merely stand its inner hairs on sharpest guard, lest the mouth taste more than what is, ahem, strictly necessary. So the city it spells no more than hollow ecliptic withholding in the elliptical shadows of seemingly purposeless fellows, the men who burrow into eyes searching for something or offering something, or the men who just in here look straight ahead and don't look at all laughing on beadies with deeply hollowed cheeks, drawing smoke up from the grinding remade earth. This discursive dismissal of the sun in the eclipse of her pout, the way she takes you in, snakes that tongue on your shuddering election, prescient willowy wallowing at the base, while further dark waves they gather, some great generator rumbles awake, Turbines howl discursively, present lips to a shadowy mouth of the newish city some rebellious Sunny has fanned for his pleasure. Even if elsewhere his father's father, firm and unsmiling, ensconced in a frame, a hand embroidered image, appears to be looking calmly away, casting no shadow on his son, our son's father, sitting below, much looking the same, wearing the same topi, sitting at his true teak desk, what else, dismissing flies with light flicks of fingers. The slip of the present, diesel's dastardly incense, the mall, imitates and magnifies the old world bungalow, luring, then clouting visitors in wave upon wave upon entry, but the road to the mall must come from what used to be called the pagoda, which is much older and elliptical as tend to be the paths of the previous. And moreover, on the way to the great cowshed-like structure, over the great cowbell-like mound that the city's garbage feeds into day by callow day, snakes also the colonial canal that once fed us, and now engorged, turbid, can only eat us in all the exhausted fume of a body that, seated in an east-west axis, takes a quick tremor like the briefest of shallow glances, not shaking but rapidly vibrating amidst coolness and relaxed impotency, which means that on occasions when the current's greater grid quakes sympathetically and the electricity snaps, the whole continuity suddenly shows itself to have lasted the length of a shadow, a willowy divagation of thought, plunging us out of ourselves and into the curious reanimation of those lanes. Then questions to himself, might one detect one's own odor? Can one in fact sniff deep into one's armpits in order to objectively know what it is one has truly absorbed of what of the enveloping incense of this optimistically dubbed metropolis in fairly immeasurable scale and detail is instantiatingly given. What a part of, what may not be divided, what not thrown away nor dismissed, what exuded, what exhausted, what claimed, what shared, what spilled, what lost, what known, what worthy of investigation, what taken up on consultation, what exorbitantly touted, what carried in single file, what covered with bright yellow bathroom tiles, what burrowed with moistened workmen, what daintily hidden behind a cloth screen in a cycle rickshaw, what coughed from the crudest of conical speakers, what smoke suspended like sculpture, what mangling flyoverist vista, What eclipse arrived in our tunnels, what hollow in place of the eyes, what harvest of mud, what handwritten letter, what tuneless call, what sudden field, what ball bouncing in the dark. Oh, static meadow, oh, days of looking forward to wonder balloon. Niece of Mr. Subramanian. Lulu, did you know this morning, Mr. Subramanian walking into a town crossed the canal on a rough and weedy stone bridge at least 500 years older than you or me? The factories and the fields slept side by side A man on a scooter blinked and waved. A woman in a pagoda hat dug in the soil with her fingers. A donkey groaned as donkeys do. And Lulu, did you know no one remembered themselves or where exactly in the face of that morning wind they were? That fresh smell in the air and probably the planet itself had forgotten with no duties except to spin happy like the toy it was. Lulu, time makes no day the same. Lulu, even when you were born a tiny beast in a wicker cradle, we knew that you came not from some bland baby fact, but were made unique and unlike all the other humans before. Lulu, it is still in your power to be unlike. Lulu, we grow so big, we lose the power to be small. Then our toys are toys no more. Lulu, did you know the donkey gazes at the field with a wide look it cannot complete? The human hand changes, uncommon, expensive, weird. Then the cheap robots refuse to make mistakes, doing their duty, blind to duty. Lulu, I remember your paintings or the cards you've made. The way shapes take jagged jumps and swirling fields of red and green. And you must not lose that even if you get bigger. Your eyes command, your hands grow deft. Lulu, it is your duty to keep this world from turning the same. Lulu, now I will draw you a key in these last lines, knowing it to be a kind of a toy. A factory swaying, for we must keep the factories too. Swaying in the morning wind that runs yellow speckles through the brown and green field and the skies dim slightly and the water sings as it runs through in strokes. A white yawn of a cloud hovers, a barge slips humming under the bridge and you and I are creatures walking on the planet as it turns and turns. Sex, which is after all mechanics, ought to be straightforward. Those who start out as prodigies are doomed to be late bloomers. So this is on the advent of the zygote. Zygote. Some notes from Subramanian to wife. This Excitation of our inner elements, all of existence as no more than experiment from end to end. Our self-education in the art of each other, the grand inefficiency of it, the shaggy static electric that sometimes misfires between us. Yet, accruing by the tiniest fractions, our fluctuation has bound us, aligned us, moves inside you now millimeter by millimeter we soar between the fundamental swaras their genius lies in waiting wait mystery and mysticism are not to be mixed but factor in our faith it is weightless changes nothing the zygote's first utterances In a dim alley, the last microcosmic blue sparks of a soldering flame, then the gray, a curtain, both metaphysical and mechanical, both a lack of color and its own kind of heat, descends. The rain roars unseen. Imagine it in that putrid after smell, the broad, reflective puddles mingling with the road. From within the fatigue, wisping like smoke. I am a machine. I begin at zero. My metal speaketh a message. I'm alive. I'm a generalist. I measure millennia. All the equipment I have is essential, O Garbarakshambhika. Ether is no evidence, and yet, As a word, it too aspires to exactitude. Short Prayer to Sound. Sound has the particular quality of being visible. It is the greater God. Vision in evening's fog presents a man on the cycle with his newspaper bags, the threaded breeze of his hair, even the holes of his eyes. Yet, though riveting, vision knows nothing of his pain. Sound does, for sound is pain, curled and garbled by the ganglia, stunned and suppressed, Dim and thundering from some secret window. Never regular, though it may sometimes seem so. Never present, though it may seem. Rivet of moment to moment. A sack on the face with holes to see. Imprecise as a world seen through cloth. Ease of the friend that follows. Agony internal to the shape of the amphora. The tinier holes through which a quality refines. A private lack. A riveting in some riveting act. What does sound carry? It will not tell. It refuses to be known. So close to us, clinging, it will not tell. He wants to gather memories in its sack as if memories in the brain shifting imagos had actually the tangible quality of being gatherable. Alas, sound is forgetting. It has already been forgotten. It is the hole into which all know-how disappears. The hole we can only call the future. Yet, like peas in a pod, like arguments in the Agora, it follows tracks. Mr. Subramanian's data. Surprisingly, he did not read the paper today. He reads it normally without fail. There were portable databases there that you could eat after you were done with them, going for practically free. The newspaper's terrors are surely worse than ours. The day is really drifting now. I wonder if I could even have used that database, thinks he. Well, says his laptop to him, I could have been that database, unusually eloquent. Just that it's hard to be. And this will be the last poem. Thank you for coming. Short Prayer to the Moon. Moon, though your energies be uncertain, I beseech you, protect him, protect all of us from our nightly visions. May the murderer and the hero withdraw gently from this, our despairing prescript. May daylight return. May we drink from the cup of gratitude. May we last long enough to make note of our error. Though burdened by knowledge, may we walk out into the open. Though burdened by knowledge, may the clouds lift from our eyes. Hour by hour, may we learn to free ourselves from prayer.
2: Starting with uh, two extracts from a book of Hours: 6:25 hours: "Since there has been no other color but violet, is that what to call the mist that neither rises nor folds above the flood meadow? Since there is no other color but violet, do we make that the way? to detect the new tips to branches that winter has bared so that trees stand static, recalling what's too deep in flesh, our electrified nerves. Given the mind's first confusion each day, since reminders of ourselves unseen throw us off, so far as those filaments make us uneasy, how is it possible that anything strikes us as other than Violet, the color the sun seems to impose between our eyes and the effort to see. And the ordinary craving to look has nowhere to go that is not to and from what seem like strong lights, so every experience one after another intensifies into a temporary unspectacular individual blindness. sixteen or seven hours. When it was cooler than about twenty eight degrees, she put on a turquoise sweater down the back of which her black hair looked brown. This girl called herself Amber, but her name was not quite that. She had spent very little time in the place where she was born. Now she was in a different nation from any that she had lived in before. This one was further south than many, but not as far west as some. The picture of herself that Amber liked most showed her in bright North American daylight, no brighter than her eyes, under the white cowboy hat that she held up with a hand either side of her face. And she looked like she thought she looked every inch the cowgirl. And so, though not a sliver of unlawful wrist or ankle was showing, What mattered in such photos was Amber's pride in her blue jeans. There was a sadness in Amber who loved language but was better at art. Well, in her new nation, where she sometimes wore the turquoise sweater that she had imported from somewhere where such garments, trapping the light like dew on brambles or the glint of sharps and grass, are commonly sold rather than made. Well here her movements were as strictly regulated as usual, she was 16, which was a relief to the local nymphs who were her allowed companions, that such a luxurious, exotic creature submitted as if naturally to being checked up on, just like they had to, though she answered to stranger authorities. So Amber's appearances were heralded and chauffeured, her disappearances belled and controlled, It was always on the cards that Amber with her family would vanish in a big way, and after a period of lingering that must have involved some preparation, they vanished, just like that. They may have had international motives. One day, while there was still not much foreshadowing of any colossal future events, Amber let it drop that she loved the wealth of blue in the sky before sunset in this her latest land. This was a peculiar thing for a schoolgirl to say. Astonishing, in fact. You could see it on clear evenings between 5 and 6 p.m. Isn't that blue also found in other skies at other times? Since then, that blue is amber. That's the only extract to read from Undraining Sea which has got a mysterious whirly thing on the cover, which Vivek can explain to you. (laughs) These next mix up poems that have been writing over the last couple of years, uh, some in response to photographs of dilapidated houses uh, with poems from the book that will be coming out this year. Gift of a Staircase, For the sake of clarity, which is the blackout, whaleback, salient, and misguiding aspect of what I now hope to assay, I desire you to accept of me the staircase. I desire it for you in the diminishing of every association of staircase with birdcage. I desire you attentive to the unpicking of your own ribcage. I desire you vertiginous if you rise, if you walk, if you remain. I desire with you assent. Shaking off my old horrific procedure of careful omissions, I would have burnt down the house, except it fell upon itself, except it fell of itself, except I too needed to escape and did nothing, and yet could not put myself out of the way of burning. You had begun the escape. Why did I skirt the burning? We too may have escaped. What of the pervasive sensation of another burning? I am sensible of every blade of grass, invisible by distance, blocks away on lawns, fat green and purple crisped to solar fury of worms. A surging somewhere. Chromosomal, curlicues, unmendable, the destruction we both do and do not witness plumes sky high and therefore appears entire and objective. So do we, so we do. Put from me this aspect our doing, for there is this thing I now hope to assay. I desire in yours my own assent. In this blue, blue sky used to wheel a glory of vultures. What picked them off? This is not a harp plundered along the journey of a grand piano's innards. This is not a mushroom's undercap wealth of soft, dark spines. Oh yes, there's a family resemblance to the impressive wickerwork hand-platted by our blind ones, but I've not brought you the gift of a chair accept of me this staircase and that I too yearn skywards in the manifold increase of simplicity for which there is another name and that we look up hotly oh you are lifted from me and about that which I left unburnt the critic in his natural habitat. You seem to be serious about literature. Have you ever considered writing up some of these thoughts of yours? A poet like you could bring a fresh perspective to criticism. People would appreciate that. You needn't worry, they wouldn't expect scholarship. My book came out last year. You don't want me to bore you with that. It's just an in-depth study of darkness and the imagination in the 17th century. The 17th century might not be your cup of tea. Oh, is that your book? I'm afraid I don't read much contemporary poetry. Will you give me a copy? Only if you have one spare, of course. Sultry photo. I'm never sure about books with author photos. The rail station photo booth, really. You don't write for the Times literary supplement, do you? Dorina recently did a brilliant review of Winsome's edition of Gussie's translations of Brazilian slum poetry composed in Spanish by a French guy who taught in an art history course, yeah oh, donkeys years ago. I don't remember his name. He lived in one of those nice houses. Haven't you read them? You read Italian, don't you? I'll send you the reference if you can remember to find the time to send it. You wouldn't believe how busy I am. End of term exams bang in the middle of barbecue duty. And the family insists on their five days in Cornwall. I'm so desperate to get back to my research. Madness. A nightmare. Merciless. But I'd like to see you again. May I see you again? Gracie, put on the wash. I need my brown corduroy trousers for tomorrow. Sorry. Oh. You're going away. Stop, passenger. I held out my arms. I woke up smiling. I held out my eyes and opened my arms. My eyes held out. The arms were awakened. My eyes holding out for an opening. The holding of eyes. Commencement of arms. Unbeholden. Unbidden. As the dog stricken of its fur flees on shipboard, like a bouquet of roses launched travellerwards from shore, finding its feet, finds no master for mangy days. So mangy days, a calendar of gangplanks gagging and barking awake of particular salt, unbidden, unbecoming, as the dog whines and presses up against lifeboats cocooned as if hatching monarch butterfly flags, fledging a fur the wind crisps thin to infancy, the technology of its tail of a piece with uselessness, useless with tenderness plumed for a go-nowhere walk. Deterred, abiding, the sea returns to turquoise strung with jets. The shore lines up, it is assumed by sight the shore too much behind the lanes too bright unseen unsure waving back each tender stop passenger it is the jetty night to sleep possum to dream possum descending a stairwell a step ladder numbers of sleep rounded up Possum defending sealed caves of seal sheep, sea clouds, hair merely daisies telling a petaled profusion of slumbering possum. Enamelled possum logging out early. Possum without compass seeks haystacks in haystacks. Thoroughly navigable cringly acres. Impossible n'est pas français. A possum's nest n'est pas français. A possum cantabile, possum untrainable, the nest unscheduled stop. The nest is silence, the deepest possumism. opossum knows possum wakes only for possum. So, accordingly, all possumbilities hold. No, I don't know how much stamina you have, but this is a short sequence. I think it's probably the most recent thing I'll read tonight, the least pleasant. <laughs> Creative writing lessons. One, avoid the abstract and the general. It is easy to avoid the abstract. In the old days of power cuts and strikes, I read books by candlelight. Now at work we have the internet and I grew functionally illiterate, sit through the hours of a long-haul flight, as if at my desk, almost parotized, take blood thinners, nor can read nor write. In the side of my left knee a small bird shrieks and it is the same thunder. There is no avoiding the general my mother is a little in love with him. So must be the giant who hugged every wall and his face rubbed off like a big heart print. Turn your back on the general have your back to the wall. His fascination makes sense. The general has top notes of Mandarin, extraordinary sillage, and a dry down of amber and bourgeoisie. Back of my right nostril are black iris pears and it is the same thunder. Part two, use the five senses to make things vivid and concrete. Violence begins to enter this interchange. I smash the decanted forwards against the glass, insisting, look, look outside. Nothing shatters, the landscape is colorful The deaf ones felt the music in the palms of their hands and the soles of their feet. They wept as they handed me an ice cream cone full of sand, which they had prepared because they thought me blind. Two volunteered their answers to touch. Birds are sticky, wrote the one who opened his fist, puzzled, in contemplation of the crushed down. The fledgling had known utter enclosure in the last moment before never achieving flight. The other opened her mouth and began giggling as if against her will, as if she wished to speak, as if she also all the time had to run her own fingertips over her own fingertips, as if discovering fingerprints, as if that was it. I picked up the scissors and the intact doll she had let fall. I could smell the fledgling. The transaction was as grotesque as if I had taken a handmade initialed silver tongue scraper to my fermented rice tongue to verify the residual, no incremental fever of a kiss I had foregone. In any case, it was leaf-meal dizzy with jasmine and unspeakable adhesives compounded by daily tramping the tarmac. She is vivid and concrete on the whole, my sister. I have brought her in as a teaching aid. Don't you like her? Come closer. Her hair is silky, feel it. It was perfumed from before her conception as her mother was confined for nine months to a bower carpeted with green herbs. Pick up her arm, quiescent, just a little resistant. Don't you like her? Like her, please. We are one blood, she and I, and for you it's free. It's free. Part three. Give evidence of process. It comes out cramping, head like a blown light bulb. I am supposed to love it, convince it of open meadows. There are none within miles to show it, feed it on toffee and clover. It grows up spitting and hitting out. Meantime, my own child, I left under the flower pot. I turn over the terracotta, discover two snakes. (coughs) There's a poem here called Tusk in Three Parts, which I think might be long and a little bit depressing. Oh, God. Can tell him in New York. <laughs> <laughs> Task one. Truthfully prone to brood a little, brooding apt to create a corner, creating a heap of mine enemy's skulls. They who earlier took cutlery round my brains, who, earlier having taken cutlery round my brains, broke my fast grey worm-like processes, such that now I taste freedom for the plays musical windows with my cranium. Now here, now there, sunrise chairs in my dome. I have achieved such a polished presentation as never before, you who are not my love. Purely incurved ivory transmitter glow. You have a terrible memory, you who are not my love. I am feeling to bowl along and bite you on the leg. Tusk two, what end, these questions? I see in the middle distance a point, our acquaintance where it maybe is cut. You in front, I would be following leading square steps to an avoidable plateau, stone basin of evisceration where the sun no longer holds fire. Lizard flick incisions overrunning a wheel less barrow, hip height representation and a heap of literalized hearts. I see in the middle distance. Mind sees, mine, mind's eye. Mind sees, mine, mind sigh, mind's ease. Mine, mind's eye who turns to face us, also I proffering an apron. I took them out over and over, immobilizing hearts. The third part I should explain was written in a Victorian flat in England where an extremely sober, sober civil servant thought she saw the ghost of World War II nurses. Disturbingly, she didn't know this, but the house used to be used as a nurse's hostel. But anyway, <laughs> I still live there. <laughs> Brain, why demand body running on water? Why require wing to their attentions, orange pollen under the tongue of sleep? Lying out of place, I disarranged it, wax on paintwork, I would not scrape it, light upon dust outlining one size of shoe, no more. Talkative, the walls, what are you celebrating? Floor, may you rejoice in having been well fed, yellowing the rosemary on the ledge craves water too cold. Beggars eat heaped snow. Hands. Lucky hands in your expansile microclimate, assisting at your own flaying. You forget you cannot remember, you cannot know what you did not know. The ante-room's rotation, granular in a black freeze. I turned the key in the door, and the dead soldiers on the fold-up ironing board beds turned a breath of welcome and bells rang where the staircase has been removed, and I was made uneasy by the formation of the here and now. Person of my last willing touch, intention darts, exits, via the backs of the fingers, via the ribs, reasserting extreme nowhere, leaving me standing, locked out of abstraction, weak as if in thaw, for happiness, a stonemason could substitute 5 petaled exactitude. If not for you, if not for better listeners, or oh gods who can be put out and not put out, what is this thing I learned to do? away the wings already folded in dust and stop breathing for this work is too engaging I have no allergies I sent you through closed doors and your footfall brings nothing closer but black light I sat on the rooftop and saw the trees rising to wave goodbye I saw the wave rising blue-green An anxious fiddling inside the house was you, that kept inside, inside. The waves rise, blue-purple. In the straight lines of the republic of work friends, enthroned, there sits one tiber-faced, hands down, hands down, handing down judgments. He likes you can play tigers, an amusement is ground tigers, good medicine. That intense quality only a wasp would have had, that incessant quality only the sea. To enter a chamber unstilled by musicking, now the move from noise to noise, once was from silence to wings, scent, (coughs) footfall, black light, trees Rising inside rising waves, blue green, blue purple waves, straight lines, the republic enthroned, handing tigers, intense, incessant, only too much, one too much musicking silence No give me more time, said night but you're setting me to teach how suns build up into compendiums. One. One. One to the power of zero. Given I hold more light, give me more time, said night. You will not miss day. Time enough. So much must reach you summing, bright as ever. Each slowly traveling star seems beaming, blink light, desperate. Look, no days may comparate. it. This needs time. That goes far. Wait whole work like heaven. And radiant intersections give up sight. Drop day. Admit, I hold more light. Thank you.
0: So we thought we'd have a Q and A period. If Um, wondering if there are questions from the audience both uh, Vivek and Vani work as critics as their work sort of alludes to Um, and um, I guess I would start uh, by asking if they had to change anything or what went through your minds in preparing to read in New York as opposed to in London or in Delhi or is there a difference if so what
1: It's is not in the sense of awareness that I might be keep dropping in on the conversation. So, so there's, a, there's, a, there's a curious uh, situation where increasingly uh, people writing around the world are tuning into the American conversation. The American conversation is somehow not fully aware of this or somehow not able to uh, process this except perhaps in its, on its own terms. Um, so uh, so that, that that is that is one sort of uh, challenge or some sort of kind of question to to pick up and work with, which is sense that uh, I feel a part of the scene and yet I'm not part of the scene. And, and it's a strange sort of a, a thing. Um, and uh, uh, in terms of the Indian side, I, I think, um, on one hand, there is this. There is uh, through the increased availability of text, There's a there's a, a kind of a new um, cosmopolitanism, could we call it, kind of coming up in, in Indian cities, and um, and I think this is having probably the most exciting effect in in languages not other than English. Um, like, like Malayalam, for instance, there is a whole generation of Malayalam poets who are coming up with a very kind of interesting and a consciousness. Um, um, but, but on the other hand, there's these kind of traces of the situation. Uh, one, certain ideas about poetry and about the place of poetry in relation to uh, the nation, the idea of socialism that poetry should be simple and accessible, and uh, uh, so so, they, so that that and and plus a kind of very strange, um, uh, still persistent situation where uh, you know they, even the intelligent Randa and seem to take cues from England. Um, so so it's and and um, so so then I mean what I'm trying to say is I guess is that is that it, it, it's. Um, uh, not any uh, not a question that can be answered very simply, but it has various kinds of cutting uh, loyalties and um, uh, effects and uh, redays. Um, and yet somehow this, this sense of which presumably should have been possible, this the sense of a kind of global uh, even a global anglophone literary culture seems impossible to manage
2: very good way a more global and complex picture because it frees really me to be slightly anecdotal and, uh, and sort of more practically, in reading in India was the most terrifying reading really I've ever done in a nice way because uh, I was trying uh, as a fourth generation Indian diaspora person I was trying to get not Roots, so you know, not to Roots, i not there, instance, well, And can use the mic? Yeah. Anyway, when I was uh, reading in India, it was the most terrifying reading I had done because I was trying not to return to roots. And correctly or incorrectly, I was more aware of a poetic tradition existing in India. I'm not talking now about a modern poetic practice, unfortunately, but I thought to myself, uh, you know, the great epics that I used to hear my father chant were composed on the soil. Why am I bringing a handful of broken lyrics here? I have to arrive, stick my tongue out and die. I really didn't, and then I found that people were reading and writing poetry more or less as normal but with somewhat greater stamina, at least at the almost island readings, because I found that people could listen to a reading for four to five minutes to an hour and maintain their attention. That, to me, is a big difference between having read in India and reading in England, uh, is that the readings, nobody in England quite classifies me, so I either get invited everywhere some months and other months I get invited nowhere because I'm not really post-colonial, I'm not really avant-garde, I'm not really mainstream, and I don't really do identity politics, but then I say things that don't fit. And for example, at the mainstream readings, I hear people seriously say, nobody can pay attention for more than ten minutes, you have to change it every ten minutes, and then those readings for me are actually about mental arithmetic, and I don't enjoy them at all, because I realise it's like driving a car and trying to go from zero to a hundred in under 10 seconds the first time you're out on a police tour of duty. Mm-hmm. 10 minutes is just about three lyrics, so that's one kind of medium lyric, but how do you, it's like buying one lottery ticket, are you going to read one medium lyric? So those are not readings I enjoy doing. The avant-garde readings are also very good, and I did at one of them something that I've never done before and may never do again, which would read all three parts of a poem which was written in response to Patterson. So that was quite long. But the thing is, I get the feeling at those that they occur in lightless rooms where many people are slightly drunk, and it's, they remind me slightly of political rallies I've attended in Trinidad, because uh, I know that everyone arrives there with a, with a will to listen, and the will to listen is what maintains their attention, but how much the attention remains present to itself, uh, but at least for a certain point in the proceedings, which usually consist of about 30 poets per day, I don't know. And I think reading in New York was perhaps the easiest, uh, because... Uh, I assumed that the audience would be very mixed, uh, that uh, I wouldn't really have to footnote things, uh, or that if I did have to footnote things, people would ask, which I hope you'll now do. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, you, I might do, but you did create a whole character, and I only have bits.
1: Uh, well, actually, I, I probably, you know, um, uh, I mean, I, I, I think that, that, that this is this is something I I'm uh, still uh, thinking about, even though I guess the, the book is uh, written, but. Because I, I think that the, the, there was, you know, uh, somewhere in the genesis of this project was almost like a kind of a lark. is the, 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 the persona poems, uh, you know, uh, starting, you know, starting with the early modernists and going through uh, Ashbury and um, uh, in the various imaginary friends. I keep. And um, but but I, I think that that though the project began that way, um, it ultimately I, I don't think I could accept or relate to that sense of um, a persona or even that sense of personhood uh, in that frame. So uh, so so what uh, so what uh, what it seems to have become then, and, and what, it, what it became, essentially, was um, a particular trying to turn on a certain relationship to language with myself. So, uh, so you see, the thing is that, that uh, this is a, in India, and I, I think in the Caribbean, it, it might be different, but in India, there is a very complex relationship uh, to the English language. Um, which is to say that um, a, a small, only a very small elite percentage speaks English well, uh, and yet a large portion of the country speaks or understands some English or has bits of English. And so there's a, there's a kind of a whole gradation in terms of how uh, English is used and, and, and spoken. And moreover, this gradation plays out into a kind of a class dynamic. So that when you when you meet people and you talk in English, that's a thing that goes on. So somebody doesn't cannot speak English really well, then you, that becomes a way of kind of placing them. Uh, so 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 for all these reasons, that so so for all these reasons this idea of a kind of an Indian English, which we're supposed to think exists out there as an object, doesn't actually exist in that form. Uh, so and there, there are all kinds of anxieties related to the speaking of English, to the mastery of English, and so on. Um, in the midst of this, uh, there are uh, a kind of um, uh, there are there are Indianisms that would that might crop up, you know, t- things that you would say, certain ways of using phrases, uh, or like for instance the way that the wood is used. Would you be having some tea? And I think that would that particular usage, <coughs> but that might be taken into other things that essentially would seems to echo something in the Indian languages where you use it as a form of politeness. So, it's, so you know, there are certain things that are, that are shifted. Um, so, uh, so, there, so, so the, the tradition of kind of linguistic experimentation with the English language in Indian writing. Um, a, a key text of that would be uh, uh, all about and mm-hmm. There, by Chhivi Desani, um, uh, that is a kind of more, uh, more complex precursor uh, uh, to to Rushdie. and um, and so the tradition works through parody. So so somehow to be able to access this kind of more this particular stranger innovative relationship with English. Uh, I had to go through parody, um, but I also knew that I had to kind of get to the end of that somehow. That I didn't want to be stuck just there uh, at that. So, um, so this is just I know that that's maybe a very long answer, but 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 so so Mr. Subramanian, strangely enough, I think for me uh, became a way to release that language in me and. Uh, and to also push it uh, beyond clarity. and so so um, so so this included, you know, certain experiments, metrical experiments, attempt to kind of cast the shadow of the Tamil language uh, into the English through various kinds of metrical effects and things like that, um, syntactical stuff, um, and uh, it's all in retrospective thing, but but. Uh, and, and various you know various kinds of forms languages and, 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 and things like that and um, uh, you know ultimately that that became more important to me than this, this idea of a, of, a, of a dramatic persona and and uh, and then suddenly mr. supermanum also started doing a lot of things that um, you know uh, i I guess I, I guess i been nervous of, i don't know what but that i like for instance so mr subramanian speaks bad english sometimes or he speaks a strange english he, he is uh, abstract he's not concrete and <laughs> and he's uh, it's full of abstractions and he he breaks he it just became a sort of a, a thing and somehow uh, somehow i needed him to do this but 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 uh, but it became very clear to me is that i i couldn't it's, a, it's, a, it's weird because uh, because I, what became also in increasingly clear to me is that this notion of notion of person personhood and personas and stuff like that in the way that it's constructed is something I actually want to sort of break out of and uh, and what I find is that the the relationship between the narrator and the persona is something that keeps it seems to be fluctuating uh, throughout the book um, so um and that's why, that's why this time, what I, what I tried to do was actually not to give any preamble and just let that part speak
0: uh, to what
2: I, I can think of three things that I might say, which might sound a bit tangential, but one of them would be to question whether what I'm writing is poetry. And uh, I'm saying this as an ex-medievalist because uh, I mean, quite a lot of what I read, but that's really the second part of what I'm going to say, which is how the poems arise. But I think that I would, in other centuries, be writing philosophical dialogues, devotions, meditations, or other types of mixed text. And it's an oddity of today's market as much as anything else that these things are poems. I would also point out that one person's prose poem is another person's essay, is another person's short story. I'm not going to go into this academically, but if, for example, you look at someone like the poet Wayne Brown, who died recently, who was also a newspaper columnist, uh, you could arguably lift huge chunks of prose poetry out of his newspaper columns, uh, which everyone read because they were in the daily papers and nobody told them that these are inaccessible but I rather question whether they could have been published other than by a minority of press, had he been living in England. So there's that whole question whether what I'm doing is poetry at all, or all the time. The second thing would be, how do poems arise? Because even when I agree that I'm writing poetry, not all poetry is of the same kind. So sometimes, some poems will arise purely as a rhythm, and a series of spaces, a-linguistic spaces, and a-linguistic flows of sound, not necessarily with uh, images attached. And I have to be extremely quiet, including quiet in my head. And sometimes I do just write down metrical marks, which might as well be the marks for a piece of music. That's one kind of poem. Then there are other kinds of poems where I don't actually know where the form will what the form will be, and uh, their images and ideas, uh, and a certain urgency, a kind of thickening here or speeding up there, and uh, often I will have to draft and redraft that, and the drafts might take five pages, uh, and I really do not know what the thing's going to look like at the end. So, in terms of the direct address and other techniques, uh, I, I really don't... I really don't want to talk about inspiration coming from within in some sort of magical way, but I would rather say that with the training as a former medievalist, uh, with an interest in music, uh, having closer dialogue, for example, with friends who work uh, not in English, not in poetry, but, say, in music and classics, etc., then uh, there are these odd formal things going on in my head, uh, and the possibility of using a direct address uh, or the possibility of shaping a poem around something like a pure series of sounds, or the possibility of using a page for an unperformable poem, because there's some poems that don't perform. There's, there's a simultaneity of time, and you need to hear cross rhythms. Then, I, I, I really do feel that with from the extraordinary r- richness of these various traditions and the dialogue with friends who know more than I do about these traditions, then I have access to badly behaved techniques which erupt according to their own necessity, that's different from inspiration. And the last thing I to say which is quite niggling, I would just call attention to features like pronouns. I get very I used to work on the Oxford English Dictionary, and I was interested that you spoke of direct address because I don't always think of using the second-person pronoun, for example, as as, as always having the same value. Sometimes the second-person pronoun is a way of distancing myself from the poetic persona because the imaginary second person isn't a properly implied reader. It's more like Titus Andronicus uh, shooting his messages and arrows into the sky to the gods. It's more giving a sense of a direction outwards rather than the turning inwards and i think this may partly have been born from something negative uh, which will distaste for the mainstream anecdotal lyric because i sometimes have slightly vulgar responses to things and uh, when i would read a really well packaged little mainstream anecdotal lyric uh, in which it says something like and then you looking at me over the heaped watermelons, uh, muttered in Spanish, uh, something about um, you know my lost child or whatever. Then uh, I think to myself, No, I didn't. No watermelon. Don't know what you're talking about. It wasn't me. Some other girl. Because there's much too precise a uh, you being implied. Uh, and then it becomes like reading somebody's blog. I've got an interesting life, really. And and I really wanted to, to shake up that use of the second person. And, and make it able to float. Um yeah,
3: Keith, Keith used to do that too. He wrote down the rhythms of the, the poems and you know put the marks and then tried to find the words that would very
2: much.
3: Um, but the question I wanted to ask was about England. Yeah. Um, Everything. Mm.
2: Elliot, what was the question, though? <laughs> what do you
3: think about
2: it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I was enjoying listening to you. <laughs> oh, I can do lots of different things with that. and You're tempting me badly. But the first thing is... Uh, the first thing is that I sometimes get a little disappointed by the the fact that I don't think the same kinds of writers i mean writers who would be natural kin to one another do link up across the Commonwealth they think they often work in parallel because the writers I can think of who work in Trinidad where I was born in an English language tradition doing certain things uh, and not necessarily in direct touch with the writers who are doing the same thing or similar things in other Commonwealth countries or in England. The other thing is I think that what it might mean to rebel against the English language tradition, whatever it is, means different things in different places. So while I can understand uh, wanting to fracture syntax, et cetera, et cetera, if one had grown up in England, uh, it actually becomes very difficult growing up in Trinidad to attain a lyric line which is which also can zigzag with the variety and flexibility of registers and languages and a kind of polyphony of registers, languages, allusions. So in Trinidad there might be a kind of challenge to make a memorable singable beautiful lyric poem that nonetheless does quite wild things. And that is actually more difficult than saying, well, I'll put a bit of this here and a bit of that there. That somehow disrupts something. I don't know if that's an answer. But the other thing is that having, the other thing is I'm overprivileged, which I think some people who have a good Commonwealth education can be, because I wasn't really very good at feeling oppressed because I didn't really feel locked in agonistic combat with my predecessors, but I rather felt that uh, there was a whole lot of stuff there, you know 1400 years worth of stuff, which I could roam around in, and also quite quickly realized that you can't read English without reading French, and you can't read French without reading Italian, and you can't read Italian without reading Latin, which you still can't read, etc. And so, I mean, English for me, or anything for any alive Commonwealth person at all, was a starting point, not an end. Um, it's an, it's an
1: interesting. I mean, um, I'll to come back first to that that point that, that English is a kind of aspirational language in India. So, so. The idea of uh, not just not just mastering English, but but kind of making a kind of a statement in English or kind of announcing oneself in English, uh, you could say is is part of this whole kind of craze to write uh, the craze in Indian English fiction, and that's also a kind of global aspiration. So so somehow somebody has to hear that that announcement, and uh, so. So it's uh, uh, so it has that announcement has to be heard um, in England somehow that, that there's still a kind of waiting for approval um, and, and that probably uh, governs a lot of a lot of literary life uh, in India um, in my own case I think I'm part of the generation of writers who were pretty influenced by American writing from the start and having gone to college here and so on. And for me um, it's all, it was almost like I didn't want to have to, It almost like the way that anglophone poetry was laid out was that you had to choose between the American way and the British way. And uh, I wanted at all costs to resist both. That I, I didn't want to just become an American poet and I didn't want to Certainly didn't want to become a British one either, and and so so it, so it was I had to almost kind of use one thing against another, and I, I think that that has been sort of that's what that's, that's another stream that has been going on as well. Um, uh, Adil Jaswala talks in his introduction to an anthology in '72, covering you know works written throughout the '60s uh, in different languages. Is that is that there was this whole Turn towards uh, because they wanted to somehow resist Britain, and they were kind of suspicious of America as whole turned towards you know a lot of people are reading Sartre for instance a lot of Indian writers are reading Sartre or, or um, Kafka and that so there, there is that, there is that whole stream of Indian writing that draws on that of course it comes through translation and um, and there some reason there hasn't been a full awareness that coming to us uh, through translation um, so there, there there are these there are these uh, different kind of kinds of pulls um, but uh, um, yeah so and and somehow and somehow it's it, it's a bit strange that it, it still seems that way that, that there's a the um, American open form transition, uh, open form tradition, and then the British sort of stanzaic tradition, and that uh, somehow one has to choose between those two. Um, I mean, yeah, I think that, I think in the, in the uh, uh, but yeah, and it's, it's, it's also that, um, mm, that, that maybe, I don't know, in the, in the Caribbean, I think there is a sort of long internal conversation in English, and there isn't a kind of rhetorical weight to English that there might be in, in India, right? There isn't a, because also, the, I think the other problem in India is that if you write in English, there's still this whole rhetorical tradition of you being accused of various things and so on, and that creates yeah. an additional layer of anxiety.
2: Yeah, I think India's a different case, because it's enormous and contains so many literatures in other languages.
1: So, um, so, so I, I think that, that also, I don't know, So, so... It, it, it seems like a kind of a set of traps and decisions that one
2: has to be, has to um, kind of choose, uh, choose between. I need to add a footnote though, which is I'm disturbed that we keep on saying the UK and England as if they were synonymous. Uh, whereas, uh, I mean, it's my moment to speak up for Welsh and Scottish. Uh, mm-hmm. Particularly as they may soon be applying for Scottish passport if things continue as they seem to be going politically, and uh, then uh, the other thing, of course, is that England isn't monolithically England. That uh, to attempt to be a practicing poet in the north of England is quite quite different from the southeast. It might seem ridiculously small in a country the side state of states of the size of the states or India, but it's remarkably different. It is like moving from one country to another
1: just to add, maybe I'm repeating the point, but I realised that that, um, Elliot had asked this particular question about why it is that that the use of English or that that working in English poetry in India has not meant a kind of rebelling or a kind of rejection, uh, a kind of founding rejection of of the British tradition. and I, I think that, that, that perhaps that this colonial anxiety is, is different from the American colonial anxiety in that it's, it's specifically uh, linguistic. So a lot of it, a lot of uh, the, uh, the kind of what I call the post-colonial or the commonwealth countries that the idea of writing in English becomes about um, status and about a certain kind of mastery. And, uh, and you could probably, you could probably see a lot of writers. Um, you know, I can think. Of, I can think of a few who have, in a way, um, shot themselves in the leg because they spent their life kind of ha- wanting to show this mastery of of, of English and, and to put up their defenses that that they, that they haven't actually been able to feel free with. It.
2: Do you think there's a taller parallel with the choice between Scots and English in Scotland? Oh, sorry, that's perhaps a question for another time, but it strikes me that's also a post-colonial situation. I a that, uh, about today? Are you asking me to tell it? Vivek?
1: Um,
2: Could then do something that would have reduced vowelism and irritable vowels. But anyway.
3: Shall we turn across the
0: street? <laughs> thank you.